right. Thank you, gentlemen. Let's begin, if we may, once more with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. O Lord, who has taught us that all our doings without charity are nothing worth, send thy Holy Ghost, and pour into our hearts the most excellent gift of charity, the very bond of peace and of all virtues, without which whosoever liveth is counted dead before thee. Grant this for thine only Son, Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. All right, in our previous presentation, we discussed acedia and the disease that wreaks havoc in the soul as a result of capitulation to this particular temptation of boredom, sadness, sloth, listlessness, this noonday demon described by the Desert Fathers of the early church. And we explored the significance and the danger of this temptation as leading us ultimately to a separation from God and a separation from ourselves and from other people. Now, in the history of the church, there is clearly a cure for this particular sin and temptation. Again, a a malady that was most particularly explored in monasticism. Because within the monastic life, there was the sense of urgency, the sense of obligation and necessity to live a particular life structured in a particular way. And as one enters more and more into a state of perpetual prayer, reflection, recollection, meditation, the temptation of acedia grows and looms larger. The more we place ourselves before Christ and seek in him to order our lives in his peace and to develop a rule of life, a standard, a structure of life, the more this particular temptation will come upon us. So the early fathers dealt with the question of acedia and what its solution, its resolution might be. The most important of all the fathers to talk about this and the particular cure for the disease of acedia is St. Thomas Aquinas, who of course is indeed the angelic doctor and is the synthesizer of the patristic tradition in the Western Church. He goes back to the early desert fathers and the early fathers both east and west and looks at what they have to say about acedia and how it affects the soul and then comes up with a very concise explanation of how acedia may be thrown overboard. How can we overcome in the spiritual life this sin of acedia? Now, for our discussion on the cure of acedia, we begin with Jesus, we continue with Jesus, and we end with Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the God-man, is the solution to the sin, the problem of acedia. And we can already see that because in Christ we have the reintegration of creation, we have the renewal and redemption of creation by Christ's coming in the Incarnation. We see that the material world is united to God in the Incarnation, and Christ heals us. Not only does he heal us, restoring us to the full likeness of God by grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he reintegrates and restores the whole created order 
and he summarizes all things in himself. The Lord Jesus is, as St. Irenaeus of Lyon said, the recapitulation of all things. In Christ, all things are summed up. And this is what we read in the epistle of St. Paul to the Ephesians. In Jesus Christ, all things are brought together, reunited by the blood of his cross, and they are lifted up, they are exalted in renewal, restoration, and transformation. So that Christ is the recapitulation. He is the new head of the new creation. Therefore, in Christ, all spiritual dilemmas are resolved. And in Christ, the whole creation is raised up, is lifted up. Christ is the exaltation of all things. Christ is the head of the body, which is the church. Christ is the head of the new creation. So if we want to know the cure for acedia, which is disintegration, which is separation, divorce, which is opposition, which is rejection, refusal, we look to Christ. For Christ Jesus is the one who brings all these things together and reverses our primeval, our primordial state of original sin. Christ is the one who comes to make all things new. Behold, I make all things new. That is Christ, Christ the Lord. So for St. Thomas Aquinas, the cure for acedia is in fact the incarnation. Now we Anglicans, and thank God that we are Anglicans, Anglican Catholics, our heresy, we've been accused of a heresy, the heresy is we focus so much on the incarnation that we don't focus on other things. That's the claim that is often made. It's a false claim because there can be no redemption, there can be no glorification without the incarnation. The incarnation is the pulsing beat, the pulsing heart of reality. God became man in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the Holy Ghost. God wed himself to the created order. Christ is the one who links heaven and earth and makes all things new by uniting divinity with humanity, uniting divinity with the material order and with creation itself. The gap has been bridged in Christ. So the Anglican Catholic heresy is no heresy at all. Today we celebrate the feast of St. Nicholas, who was willing to punch Arius of Alexandria in the face for denying the incarnation at the First Ecumenical Council in 325 AD. And if you've ever had occasion to, to see it, uh, I hope you will. If you haven't, please do look for it. There are wonderful icons of St. Nicholas punching Arius in the face. Oh, I've never seen that one. Oh, they're marvelous icons, yes. But even better, there's an, uh, well, this is a bit, a bit off topic. I'll share this with you, too. There's an icon, several icons, and modern paintings of St. Nicholas punching Arius in the face for denying that Jesus Christ is of one substance with the Father. He is homo usios. He is of one essence with the Father. There's another icon of Arius of Alexandria who died by hemorrhaging from his rear end. And there is such an icon, believe it or not. Uh. True story. Uh, when the Roman emperor decided that the whole world would be Arian, 
Arius was escorted into Constantinople to the Church of the Hagia Sophia, the Holy Wisdom, and was to receive Holy Communion. And the Patriarch of Constantinople would not admit Arius and knew that he would have to die at the Emperor's hand if he refused communion to the heretic Arius. Arius came into the church very proudly and delightfully, welcoming everyone, showing off, waving his hands, and saying, I'm going to make my communion. Ha ha, I won. My theology prevails. The world is Arian. All of a sudden, he gets a stomach ache, and his associates have to take Arius to the toilet, whereupon he dies by hemorrhaging from his behind, or as we say in North Carolina, his behind, and he does not make his communion. The sacrilege is averted. That's a true story. And there's an icon of Arius dying in the toilet. So I, I, I challenge you to look for that icon as well. It's quite wonderful. Where would you it's, hang that icon? I would put that over the credence table. <laughs> it's a wonderful icon. So Arius... Arius is very, very bad. And, of course, the Catholic faith is very, very good. The Catholic faith is the faith. So, if you ever wonder about how Arius met his end, just think of Charmin. And and think of Charmin toilet paper, and you will know something about it. Okay, so St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that the Incarnation is the solution to the sin of Acedia. How does Christ, in particular, save us from this sin? First of all, St. Thomas reminds us, God becomes man to unite man to God in the intellect and to allow an immediate communion and relationship with God that results in the beatific vision. So the incarnation is how we overcome acedia. Can man rescue himself from acedia on his own power? No, he cannot. No more than he can rescue himself from any other sin by his own power. The reformers had the phrase sola gratia. That is the only phrase of the reformers I am prepared to accept is true. And it is true. Sola gratia. It is by the grace of God alone. And so God restores mankind to himself through the incarnation God becomes man so that man in his intellectual, emotional, and volitional faculties may be united to God immediately. And so we have access to the beatific vision, to the vision of God, to the life of the Holy Trinity, to communion with the three persons of the one divine essence. We have communion with the Trinity through Christ who unites himself to us God-made Man, This is the divine initiative. God takes the initiative to redeem mankind, to heal, and to restore our will and our human nature. The human nature of Jesus Christ is the human nature of, of God who became man, united in one person. So as uh, St. Thomas Aquinas would focus us, we go back to the Cappadocians, and we go back to the Orthodox Christology of the early centuries and of the creeds. And there we see that it is Christ, the true Word of God, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who becomes man in order to unite humanity 
human nature to himself, so that God may be apprehended by man in the intellect. Now, this is very important. This is not merely some kind of, shall we say, forensic or extrinsic communion. God becomes man and assumes human mind, human soul, human will. Christ has a human will, and by that will, he redeems our own. By his mind, he redeems our mind, our intellect. It is united to God. So in Jesus Christ, we have an immediacy of access to the plenitude, to the fullness, to the panoply of who God is by virtue of the word made flesh. And ascedia is overcome not by ourselves, because ascedia, like all other sins, is a result of the fall. It results from the fall of man. It results from original sin. Christ assumes human nature so that our human nature, the stuff and substance of our humanity, is united with God and is so redeemed and so sanctified that in Christ we have access through the intellect as well as through the will and the body and the soul to union with God. And therefore we overcome ascedia when we invite Jesus Christ in. If Christ is in, ascedia is out. He is the one who gives us the power, the grace, to overcome ascedia. Secondly, we could say that the God-man is the bridge between human nature and divine nature. Jesus Christ rescues us. Now, in the early church, the predominant soteriology, the predominant theology of redemption in the early church was that of Christ the victor over sin, death, and evil. We call this Christus victor, Christ the conqueror, Christ the victor. Jesus overthrows sin and death, evil and Satan, by his death on the cross. And Christ is glorified on the cross because he offers his life in perfect filial love and obedience, perfect filial will to the Father. Think of it this way. Because Jesus Christ is true God and true man, the Lord Jesus carries us into the sweep of the Trinity. The Father for all eternity begets his only begotten Son, the Word of the Father who comes out from the Father. The Word through the Father sends the Spirit to us, to the church, who unites us to God. And then through the Son, we are swept back into the bosom and the communion of the Father. There's a great, a great sweep. And this great sweep takes place in every Mass, in every Eucharist. The Father sends the Son, who by the Spirit unites us to the Son, and in the Son we are then united to the Father. And this divine condescension, this condescending of the Son for our sake is the sweep by which we are redeemed. It's a continual sweep. It didn't just happen once in time, but it's repeated mystically, supernaturally, in the church and in the sacraments. God, who became man, is Pontifex Maximus. He is the great bridge builder between human nature and divine nature. Christ takes our human nature upon himself 
so as to absolutely, objectly, redeem and rescue us from sin. So we are called to recline on Christ, to cling to him. Christ alone can rescue us from acedia and bring us out of this narcissism and selfishness, this boredom, as he enlivens the world by his coming. Christ brightens the world with his incarnation. Christ redeems the material world, redeems human nature by his incarnation. He rescues and restores us in our own human nature. As St. Gregory Nazianza said, God only redeems that which he assumes. God must assume that which is to be redeemed or otherwise it can't be. It's separated from God. So in Christ, God assumes all things pertaining to man which must be redeemed, and that includes our emotional life, our imagination, our will, our intellect, as well as body and soul. Christ comes to rescue us, not only from sin, Satan, and death. Christ comes to rescue us from ourselves. He comes to rescue us from the plight of acedia, from the plight of selfishness, from the plight of the self-absorbed. Christ opens us now. He opens us to God, and he opens us to a true renovated, a true restored, a true reconciled life, not only with God, but with the created order. Jesus takes our human nature and he saves it. He completely and utterly redeems it and restores it. This leads us to the next point, which is that Christ overcomes all of the difficulties that we face and overcomes acedia so that he might allow us to move beyond ourselves. Jesus overcomes the temptation in human nature to have us settle with a human beatitude or, if you will, an animal beatitude. Because of our sin, because of our selfishness, because of our pride, because of our fallenness, man is most often tempted simply to settle for an animal beatitude, to settle for second best, to settle for what happens to be around us, to settle for what happens to be in our own sphere of life and influence. Jesus gives a large no to this. He opens us to a greater destiny. He moves us on to union with God. Christ will not allow us to be settled merely in the idea that we are animals or that we are merely created beings who live in a created sphere and we can settle for some kind of secondary animalistic beatitude, a natural happiness a natural beatitude apart from communion with the Holy Trinity. No, St. Thomas Aquinas says that Christ comes into the world to cajole us, to shake us up, to motivate us, to remind us, to present before us the truth that we are actually called for divinity. We are called for theosis. We are called for God-likeness, to be united to the Holy Trinity in such a way that we participate in the very life of God, 
by his energy and his grace. So we are called to union with God. We are called to genuine beatitude. Beatitude apart from what it means merely to be human. Beatitude, blessedness, apart from merely being created. But to, go, go, to move beyond that, to transcend that which is merely created so that we can move into the very communion of God himself. Finally, St. Thomas says to us that Jesus Christ becomes man, overcoming the sin of Asidia by inciting us to love God by seeing how God loves us. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas here is not unique. There is uh, Abelard. Most of you know Abelard. Or as my cousin used to say, Tumblard. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> he, used to say that, he used to say that Abelard with his friend Heloise was Tumblard. Well, I don't know if he was really that fat, but Abelard said that Christ's redemptive work is the great sign of divine love. And Tumblard, or Abelard, was absolutely right. In the early church, there were many ways of discussing how the redemption works. And one of the most popular, and it's true, although it excludes, I suppose by necessity, the power, the operation of divine grace, is the idea that Christ draws all men to himself as the great exemplar. Now, St. Thomas, being the good medieval theologian that he is, remembers this point of view, and he uses it, and he's right. Christ is the great exemplar. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I shall draw all men unto me. Right? Christ says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. The banner of Christ is love, and his love on the cross demonstrates the love of God towards the human race. St. Thomas says that in the Incarnation, God incites us to the love of God and the love of self, the genuine love of self. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Genuine, proportionate love of the self, not acedia, which is this dark and ugly narcissism, but genuine love of the self in recognition of God's love for us and God's love for other people, that is truth. So Christ incites us to love as he shows us the love of God for us manifested on the cross. I, when I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Christ is the great exemplar of love, and he does draw men to himself by the love that he shows for us. Now these are the ways that St. Thomas says that the Lord Jesus is the cure for acedia. But we go beyond this. Let's explore some other areas as we conclude. Another way in which Christ heals the sin of acedia is by fidelity. It is by Christ's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, living and working in us, Remember that grace is God gratuitously living and working in us. Grace is nothing less than God himself operating in us. God gives us his life 
And that life is called grace. God gives us the grace to have fidelity, order, sense of place, regula fidei. How do we in our personal lives overcome acedia? Well, if acedia is this sense of personal freedom, divorced from any sense of obligation, responsibility, accountability, then the opposite of that is fidelity. It is, as they say back in the 1970s, keep on trucking. You got to keep on trucking. Fidelity, faithfulness, faithfulness, fidelity, order. So if acedia is lack of order, if acedia is orderlessness, then order is the way that by which we overcome this sin. Order means structure. It means having a pattern. It means having a way of being in one's life that is consistent, that is planned, and that is reliable. Order. Order is the way to overcome acedia. Nobody who has an ordered life is going to submit themselves to this sin. Fidelity means we are faithful to what we have promised to God. We are faithful in what God has given to us. There is a sense of order, of structure, a sense of place. What is the fourth vow of the Benedictine order? Stability. Stability. Chastity, obedience, of poverty, and stability. St. Benedict knew what he was talking about. Stability. There has to be a sense of place. We belong where we are doing what we are doing. In the words of the indefatigable Father Bill Weston, who was my predecessor as the rector of St. Barnabas, he said, keep to your own knitting. Keep to your own knitting. Yes, keep to your own knitting. Do what you have to do. Obey what you must obey. Follow the pattern you must follow. Because in that is life. Sense of place. Sense of order. Sense of stability. Now for us as Catholics, we also understand that as regula fidei. The rule of faith. The rule of life. No Christian can hope to overcome such temptations as acedia without a rule of life. There must be a pattern of daily praise and prayer. There must be a daily order of life and work in the Christian in order to prevail over the temptation of boredom, listlessness, selfishness, and sloth. There must be a regula fidei, a rule of faith, a rule of life. Do we say morning and evening prayer? Do we pray with our families? Do we make time for God every day in recollection and mental prayer? If not, we must. It is not the affections or the emotions which matter. Emotions and affections matter not. What matters is order, structure. The emotional life is like a great roller coaster rolling up and down, up and down. The the vicissitudes, the the fissiparous nature of emotions 
they are such that we have no predictability. If we rely, like the megachurch, on the swooning microphone to assuage our feelings, we will fail in the Christian life. We have to have something deeper, something more profound. There must be a bedrock, a solid rock in the Christian life. The vicissitudes go up and down. Our feelings rise. They wax and wane. What is underneath? What is the bedrock? The rule of life. Daily prayer, consistent. Do I have the flu? Do I have to take my kids to the doctor? Did my boss yell at me today? Did I stub my toe? Does the car need work in the shop? Yes, 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 yes. Doesn't matter. The rule of life. Prayer as a consistent science. Prayer is not an art. Prayer is a science. It's a discipline. And we have to have the rule of life to order and structure our lives. When we do that, we overcome acedia. Celebration. To give thanks to God for what he has given to us. To take joy, to take delight in what God provides. We are to live lives of celebration to take time to smell the roses, to take time to savor the embrace of our spouse, to embrace the kiss of our grandchild or of our own child, to embrace the beauty of a sunset. We must learn to celebrate what it is to be human. We must learn to celebrate that everything we have is good. Every moment counts. Every minute of life is special is given to us by God, and we should revel in it. We should enjoy it, to cultivate a spirit of delight, of joy, of celebration. The taking up of the yoke, living in an ordered way, responsibly, in an accountably way, accountably. So the solution to acedia is the yoke. What is the yoke? Take my yoke upon you. And learn of me, for my burden is easy, my yoke is light. Those are the words of Christ. Take the yoke. Don't be afraid to take the yoke. Don't be afraid to take up the cross and follow Christ. What is the yoke? It is tailor-made. It was made by God for you. Everyone has a different cross. Everyone has a different yoke. God presents it, and we are asked to take it up, offer it up. That is absolutely necessary for overcoming acedia. I'll conclude with this. The Eastern Fathers, as we may have read, go through five basic points of overcoming acedia. Again, this is all Jesus. As everything I've said before is Jesus, so this is Jesus too. We cannot do it apart from Jesus. It is Jesus who gives us the power. It is Jesus who gives us the grace. It is Jesus who invites us to do it. Number one, the Eastern Fathers talk about tears, tears of repentance. We must acknowledge our need for salvation. When we are broken people, we are people open to grace. When we are broken people, We are people who can be healed and used by God. If there are no tears, there is no openness, no receptivity to divine grace. The one who has the tears of sorrow and repentance 
is the one who has overcome already the sin of Assyria. The Assyriaite, the one afflicted by Assyria, is self-righteous. Tears destroy that. Number two, prayer and work. Ora et labora. We must have tasks before us done with love and with attention. Remember what St. Paul says, pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. Every act, every thought, every gesture of our life, from the time we get up in the morning till we go to bed at night, every such act is a prayer. And our work, our action is prayer if we consecrate it to God. Are you praying today, someone asks, as someone else has bent over the computer screen? Yes, I'm offering this to God. That's our prayer. Prayer does not always have to be conscious. It is the act of the will towards God that is itself a prayer. From brushing your teeth, to doing the dishes, to getting the work done at the office, to teaching the lesson, to putting the kids to bed at night, that is a prayer. Work and prayer, prayer and work. But here's the key. It must be done with attention. It must be done with a conscientious focus. It must be done with love. Number three, contradiction. The Baptists were right after all. Contradiction. Now, throwing scripture verses at the devil is from Christ himself and from all the early church fathers. Those of us who grew up evangelicals, as I did and many of you, the Bible is the word of God. How much power do we invest in the word? The early fathers say, put all the power in it. Our St. Augustine said, when you have an evil thought, dash the evil thought against Christ, who is the stone. How well do we know Scripture? Do we use Scripture against the devil? Do we quote the Bible in our mind and heart when we are tempted to commit evil? We must do it. If we don't know the Bible, we have to learn it. We need to know it by heart. We need to learn the essential Scriptures and use them as a weapon. This is what the early fathers did. This is what we should do too. Our evangelical friends are right. The scripture is alive and active, and it is a weapon against evil. Cast evil thoughts against the stone, which is Christ, and they will be destroyed. So we are called to know our scripture, to love our scripture, and to apply the scripture in prayer. Use biblical verses against temptation. Don't be afraid to do it. Number four, meditation on death. The more we think about our death, the less likely we are to fall into the temptation of self-absorption. This life is transitory. We pray about the transitory life. And the transitory life in the, the prayer for the whole state of Christ church is true in the Mass. In this transitory life, let us meditate upon our death. The more we meditate upon our death, the more likely we are to live. The more we think about our death, the more we think about Christ and living this life to the full, 
each and every moment in obedience to him. Finally, perseverance. He who perseveres to the end shall be saved. As Christ says in the book of Revelation, do what God has ordained you to do well. Persevere in it. What is your station in life? What is your vocation? What has God given to you to do? Do it well. Persevere in it. Offer it to God in prayer. Consecrate it to God. Persevere in whatever it is you do. And if you, it's your, and as far as your personal life is concerned, the rule of life, persevere in that. Do not deviate. Continue to persevere in the rule of life. Persevere in your life and work, and you will overcome the temptation to acedia. We conclude with this. We must choose the good. We must correspond and cooperate with God's grace. We must appropriate the incarnation ourselves. God will not force us to do this. He wants us to develop habitus, good habit, which eventually leads to the cultivation of virtue. Tomorrow, we will talk about the theological virtues which are infused by God. All of this is from God, but God wants us to say, yes, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, our Lady said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. Fiat, let it be unto me. We must choose the good. This is a spiritual conflict. To overcome acedia, our choices must be operative, active, and elective. They are choices that we invite God to do, which will operate in the soul. They must be active, so that we consciously choose it and live it. And they must be elective. We must say yes to God. If we choose the good and we accept God's grace, we appropriate the incarnation to ourselves and we overthrow the sin of acedia. Thank you very much.